0: Welcome back to NALP's Young Professional Network podcast, Growing in the Green Industry. Today's podcast is powered by our YPN network partner, Steele. Steele makes a full line of gasoline and battery powered outdoor equipment for the demanding landscape professional. Find yours at steelusa.com. Your hosts of today's episode include myself, Neil Clapp with Throw the Bench, and Macy Robinson with Landcare. How are you doing, Macy?
1: I'm good. How are you doing, Neil?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, joining me on a podcast. I, I don't know if it's ever been just you and I as hosts actually. So I
1: don't think so. So everyone's in for a treat today. It, it should is. be pretty and,
0: good. And we have a good guest and I'm gonna wait I'm gonna wait till you introduce our guest to say why I'm so excited to have our guest. But go ahead and introduce uh, Trista.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Trista Emrick is the owner of Wild Works of Whimsy, is a Virginia certified horticulturist and designer and level two Chesapeake Bay landscape professional in design and installation. A Navy veteran, this Ohio State Buckeye has a master of science in environmental policy and management, bringing a unique perspective to the art of landscape design. She worked with local watershed nonprofits, doing restoration work for six years, following the Navy before going off on her own to start her business. Wild Works of Whimsy is a landscape design company specializing in conversation, landscaping, and stormwater best management practices, using a palette of native plants to bring beauty, habitat, and function to your property. Trista, anything that I missed? Yeah, I think that was pretty good.
2: Thank you so much for that introduction beautifully worded I went to the other OSU so man I don't know well we can talk about
0: that later (laughs) (laughs) well so Trista I my understanding is you can help with the situation I have in my side yard where my builder left this huge ugly dry well and I don't even know where to start with landscaping it is that (laughs) the kind of thing that you do
2: (laughs) is this like an infiltration trench kind of thing
0: yeah just like a bunch of gravel and it fills up with water when it rains Uh
2: uh-huh yeah so So, yeah typically uh something like that would generally either do some stone on top or oftentimes just sod or something but you could do some other like seeding or um you don't want to get too many roots and things down in that stone but um but yeah, we can we could talk about that too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um so why don't you tell us how you got started with this really kind of specific niche around stormwater and and native plants and and your approach to landscape design?
2: Yeah, sure. And you know, I I'm always super interested in just how people come to the green industry because I feel like people's backgrounds can be so super varied um and you know just the diversity of experience that people bring is just fascinating to me. Um, so I'll, I'll try not to talk the whole time about just my journey here because it has been very long and winding <laughs> I guess but um yeah I started actually um I always knew I was going to be an archaeologist. Um so I was on a very different path uh, about the age of seven. I saw Indiana Jones and really thought that that was the direction I was gonna go. And that followed me all the way through, uh, that's ultimately what my undergraduate degree was in. So um, I really, really didn't have anything like what I'm doing currently in mind at that point. Um, but, yeah over time people kept saying to me like well really what are you going to do with that you know like can you actually work in archaeology you know like it's not really Indiana Jones is that really something you want to do no one will pay you to do that Um, and so I kind of started to figure that out (laughs) as as time went on.
0: The crowd finally beat the dream out of you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I wouldn't like to put it that way but but, yeah, reality hit at some point. <laughs> um, although that that was still my undergraduate degree. Um, but even that was a little winding, um, because I had another curveball thrown at me in high school. Um, my senior year of high school was nine eleven. And so that really just kind of, you know, it hit me in the face, and like everything kind of took a turn at that point. Um, I know it affected everyone who went through that differently. Um, and I didn't have any personal connections or anything, but um, I just, you know, feeling especially patriotic, um, which was something I really didn't have any experience with in my life. Um, and I I was trying to figure out how I was going to do college, um, how I was going to pay for that, because I came from a family of four kids. And uh, I just happened to get something in the mail, um, a postcard from the Navy saying, hey, we'll pay for college, come be an officer. And I thought, well, okay, you know, I don't, I don't have a better idea. <laughs> I knew nothing about what it would mean to be in the military, or, you know, didn't have any family that was in the military or experience with that. But, um, but really, it, it kind of was just about, you know, being in that headspace of, you know, again, feeling like it wanted to do something for a country and, also a bonus getting college paid for. So um, I applied for the ROTC program and I did do four years of Navy ROTC at Ohio State University. And um, I actually did briefly change my major to um, electrical engineering in hopes of improving my chances of getting the scholarship. And there were some other scholarships available. So I actually had my entire room aboard funded as well which was amazing um but after a few quarters I did switch back to anthropology and archaeology so um so I did get my degree in that uh, but I went to join the Navy uh, spent six and a half years as an officer in the Navy and that brought me down to the Hampton Roads Virginia area where I still am to this day in Virginia Beach um, and while I was in the military, I knew that wasn't going to be something that was going to be forever for me. Um, it was it was interesting, but it wasn't it wasn't a career that I was interested in pursuing in the long term. And so I started to try to figure out what I was going to do next. And um, I was looking at American Military University because they offered online courses that would be a little more flexible with deployments and um, work hours. And so I started trying to see what they had to offer. And the master's in environmental policy and management program was just something that appealed to me. And it felt like maybe something that would be um, a little more, uh, that I could apply a little more easily In the world after the Navy than archaeology. So, um, you know, I figured environmental issues aren't going anywhere. And um, yeah, so hopefully I could find something to do with that. So I actually found some, uh, I found a scholarship that no one had applied for in years um, on one of the ships that I was on. I was very fortunate to have my master's almost fully funded through that scholarship program and um, ended up leaving the Navy after three tours and about six and a half years with my master's in environmental policy. So from there, I started working for a government contractor for a while, doing um, environmental subject matter expert work for them. It was kind of a cushy job. I was working from home. I had great pay and benefits. But it just wasn't satisfying to me, Um, just not having that connection to other people or really feeling like I was doing work that was very important. And so um, I started to try to seek out some other things after being in the military. I didn't really feel connected to the community that I was living in because my community had been the military for so long. I didn't have children in schools, so I hadn't really gotten to know a lot of people and understand the issues um, of the community around me. So I went through, there was a five-week course that the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, which is a regional nonprofit in this area, um, they were offering a class that each week you would come in and you would learn about a different topic. Uh, within the local environment, and um, it would also introduce you to different nonprofits and groups that were local. And so one of those weeks, uh, they brought in Lynn Haven River Now, which is our local city um, watershed nonprofit. And so they started talking about oyster restoration, and uh, different ways of improving water quality, and I I thought it was interesting Um, and again, you know, they were a nonprofit that was operating within the city of Virginia Beach. So I started to look and see, you know, what kind of volunteer opportunities they might have available there just so that I could continue to get to know them and get to know more about um, the local area. And so they ended up uh, advertising for a uh, part-time, administrative assistant position, which at the time I was kind of like, "Uh, I have a master's degree. Do I really want to sit at a desk for a few hours a week? But because I did have the other position um, with the contractor that was very flexible, uh, I could still continue to do that to pay my bills at the time, but also do some of this other work just a couple of days a week for a few hours And again, just, you know, getting to know people, networking, um, and starting to understand the issues of our watershed. So I ended up taking a couple other positions while I was there, just kind of growing into different things. Um, as a lot of nonprofits are, it was a very fluid organization. Things were changing all the time. Um, and so it was very easy to just kind of create a new position or, um, dive into different things, which was kind of fun and interesting. Um, and so ultimately I ended up uh I well, I also had a little time and money from the GI Bill to take some more classes. So I was taking night classes at our local community college in horticulture, this time just because I thought it sounded like something fun. And um, my other degrees while they were interesting and things that I was interested in um, they hadn't really been kind of hands on work um, you know things that I could just take out and apply directly and so I really enjoyed taking those horticulture classes and the landscape design classes at our local uh, community college and just feeling like I I could just you know apply that directly Um, and so I ended up in the restoration coordinator position at Lynn Haven river now. And, um, in that position where we had previously focused on a lot of oyster restoration, um, you know, I was learning about all these different things that you could do with shoreline restoration and, um, stormwater runoff and management that really just involve plants. And, you know, these engineers are trying to over-engineer and create all these things and, you know, putting all this concrete in the water and just all this crazy stuff that, you know, if they just took a few minutes and like learned about the function of what plants could do and what it could naturally you know, work with these things and create more sustainability of, um, some of these solutions, it could be so much easier and more beautiful at the same time and create more habitat. And I mean, it just, it just kind of all started to come together for me while I was there. Um, you know, I was also, uh, starting to read Doug Tallamy. That was what really got me into the native plants. Um, that was back in 2013. I heard him speak. I don't. I've heard him speak so many times since then. But um, and just uh, there was a certification that started up regionally, the Chesapeake Bay Landscape Professional Program, um, and so I was in the first group of people to go through that certification. Um, and then as that continued to grow into the in the level two certifications, um, and so you know just seeking out all these. New things that were coming out and learning more and more about what it could do, uh, just you know, with landscaping with plants to help solve some of these watershed issues that, uh, certainly we are dealing with here. And I think a lot of areas of the country are dealing with as well.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I love the constant focus on education and trying things out and just sort of, um, Combining it all until you find that one area that pulls it all together, right? Like, I think we all, all of our journeys share that, that component, but yeah, um, definitely. Definitely the theme of education I hear all the way through. Yes. So. Yes. And I love
2: educating people too. I mean, through my time at the nonprofit and still now, I mean, next week I'm giving a talk to the uh, water stewards locally. And you know, recently I spoke with um, a young high school group. That was doing a environmental program at the um, at our local zoo, and you know I love educating, especially younger people, but you know homeowners and everyone out there too, just about everything that's out there, um, and the things that we can do, and what a difference it makes. It's so important.
1: Hey, Trista, can you, uh, explain and go a little bit more into depth for watershed just for our listeners who aren't as familiar or don't do, obviously you're very passionate about it. And so it's something for them to learn, but also, you know, maybe they don't have as much experience about it or just generally know the term and that's all that they know. Yes.
2: Yes. And thank you for, thank you for being that after working in that realm for so many years, I forget basic things like that sometimes. Um, And so, and again, it's basic to me, but not to everyone. Um, and so a watershed and, you know, dealing with a watershed is basically every, everywhere you are, um, when it rains, when there is water running off of your property, that water has to go somewhere. And obviously that's different everywhere, um, in our region. And I think in a lot of areas, um, our water runs completely untreated through our storm drains out into our local waterways and um so it becomes really really important um to pay attention to what is going into that water that again is just running straight out into um here it goes into our our rivers into our bays and then ultimately into the ocean and you know it's obvious for us here because we see water everywhere that we are here in Virginia Beach and the Hampton Roads area, whether that is a river that's in our backyard or the bay that's five minutes away, or you know the ocean that's 10 minutes the other way, we're surrounded by it here. Um, we have to go through tunnels to get through half the places we need to get to. So, uh, but I, in a lot of places, the water that is running off of your property is going somewhere. And that may just be a stormwater management man-made lake somewhere, um, you know, or it may be traveling further downstream into something else. And so just understanding, you know, if you're treating your yard with chemicals um, or fertilizers, that those things are going to be running off in a storm. If you're letting, you know, if if there's garbage or something in the road, you know, the more obvious things I think about, like that's, that's going out and polluting those waters. And so, um, yeah, for instance, like with the fertilizers, a big issue here is when we do have these big stormwater events and more and more frequently, they are big events of one to three inches within a couple hours. Um, that's just washing everything into the waterways. And so if everybody's just been doing their spring or their fall fertilizing, for instance, then we get these giant algal blooms within the bay. Um, that's just, you know, the, all the, the algae that's out there is just feeding off of that fertilizer and creating these huge things that so they can see from helicopters or planes in the air. It's, it's just such an intense phenomenon. And then um, as that starts to die off and decay, then that's using up the oxygen within the water and actually creating dead zones within the water and killing off fish. So they have a fish kill following an algal bloom. Um, And it's just environmentally um, catastrophic. And, you know, that's just one example of how, you know, a simple thing like fertilizing and um, or over fertilizing um, can ultimately have a really uh, big effect and impact on our waterways locally. And so anything that we can do basically within our own landscapes to help to hold water on our own properties rather than traditionally, the idea has been to immediately get water off of our properties as quickly as possible. Um, And so now the idea is to take that water to try to intercept the water that's leaving your property and hold it there, let it over time um, get back down into our um, into our groundwater and, um, you know, actually be able to re-energize the water that's down there um, that over time is being depleted uh, through through people using well water or through, you know, all sorts of different things happening. Um, and so replenishing that, Rather than letting everything run off of our properties, um, and also treating it with things like rain gardens or um, swales or you know, any kind of uh, vegetation that can slow that water, that can take up the water with root systems um, or you know improved soil mixtures, uh, is really important.
0: Yeah, you're you're in a market where there's a huge um almost public level consciousness about that right with the chesapeake bay (coughs) watershed area which i think is bigger than most people realize Mm -hmm. and supports more industry than most people realize um can you share a little bit about the significance of why it's so important there and maybe in other communities um the types of things that are connected to that besides just the environment
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. And here we do have a lot of regulations that relate uh, directly to the Chesapeake Bay and the water quality there, um, which, as you mentioned, is a large body of water and it does encompass several states um, along the East Coast. And so um, there are regulations in place that, for example, require homeowners or um, businesses who are developing within certain areas um, that are considered sensitive. Um, so, you have the Chesapeake Bay preservation areas um, or the riparian protection areas. Um, they're adjacent to water. And you know, a lot of times people think that's just things that are directly on the water, um, but really it's like 100 or in some cases up to like 200 feet away from the water. Which sometimes people don't even realize is there because it's just a small tributary maybe running through somewhere. Um, So it it really encompasses quite a bit of our region. um, Where if they are doing anything developmentally in that area, if they are installing impervious surfaces, which are areas that um, are not allowing to the water to infiltrate um, and percolate back into the water table, so anything like concrete or asphalt or, um, you know, putting building in or even a deck, um, or if it's a a patio or something with pavers that are not permeable, um, then they actually have to mitigate for that. And so there are different ways they can do that. Sometimes they may be able to just pay a fee or a fine, um but generally they are required to do some type of um planting with on on their property and so there're certain requirements for this many trees this many shrubs this many herbaceous perennials that have to be planted to um make up for that or uh, there are plenty of places where you know they may not get approval for doing the work or um construction that they wanted to do because it's just too sensitive an area. And that goes for like wetlands too. uh, there's separate regulations for wetland areas. Um, you know, so people who are trying to mow their wetlands or don't understand or realize that they're there or removing trees in places that they're not supposed to. Um, there are fees and mitigations that come with that. And so, um, doing what I do in the area that I am and with the connections that I have through working with the nonprofits and um being involved with programs uh that the city runs as well and dealing with them on the um on the policy side of things um I am frequently referred uh, I have people referred to me from but those nonprofits and our local municipalities to do a lot of that mitigation planting, um, because it does require using native plants, which is what I plan and uh, landscape with, as well as sometimes you know just dealing with um, putting in more permeable area, permeable pavers, or um, or just that conservation landscaping.
0: Mm-hmm. Macy, how often does the center? your world um probably a lot less on the regulation side but more on the this what we have isn't growing or get rid of the water type questions
1: this is like a whole new subject for me that's why I was so interested I was like (laughs) we need to describe this more because some of us don't really have to deal with this or like coming from Texas where it's a drought most of the year even Oklahoma it's been a drought for most of the year until we get really hard snow, but that's a whole nother topic. Like just listening to you talk about this is that we put down so much ice melt and think like it's, it's going down a drain somewhere eventually. Um, while we don't have oceans and stuff around, I mean, I don't know our system as well, but that's just something else to think about. If you're in a big snow market is all of the ice melt that you're using, like it's, it's going somewhere, it's melting in with the snow and going down the drains. Um,
0: yeah, so it's the, so
1: interesting to hear.
0: We, we've been dealing with ice melt for, um, years up here in new England, right. In terms of getting to something that's more sustainable. And, uh, typically what we use is salt, which is chloride, sodium chloride, and that doesn't leave the environment, right? Like sodium chloride just goes into a body of water and stays there. And, um, it's, it's really damaging. There's also, shockingly, like no regulations, no licensures, no requirement. You can just show up with a truck and start spreading this wherever you want, um, which is problematic for sure. <laughs> um, and, and prior to that, we were using sand. Um, and a lot, a lot of people think that sand is more sustainable, but really it's, it's not. It's, it's a pollutant per the EPA. It contains a lot of phosphorus and it alters waterways. And so um, the real only sustainable solution is to move one reduction of chloride. So we focus a lot on um, tracking and monitoring and um, trying to get by with less, which is chemically possible, but but not practically done all the time, um, which is why we've had a push towards liquid uh, de and moving towards, um, Something like formates, which are common in Europe, but not common in the U.S., but also dramatically more expensive than a chloride-based de-icer. So, um, yeah, it's a real challenge and um, shocking to me that nobody's really freaking out about the environmental impact of it because it's so damaging, right? And you see it on your properties, the properties you maintain. You see the salt burn. You see the the planting beds and plant material dying every year um the solution's like replace it <laughs> not stop doing that you know
1: oh yeah we've definitely moved like we're redesigning a hospital which obviously hospitals are no tolerance like you've got to keep those clear and especially the emergency room area and it's just you know constant die out right around the curb line um like in the really hot spot areas it's like let's put a rock border around it not hey, how do we use less material here? It's just like, let's just put a rock border around it. So then it's not killing any plants. It's just going into rocks. Right. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Which is a very moment. It's interesting for me to hear it because here,
2: I mean, we do get the occasional snow, but not anything like a lot of other areas. And so I think we had switched over to sand and I think that's still the case, but mostly if it snows here, nobody can go anywhere for... A week until it melts because we're just kind of stuck because we don't have the equipment to deal with it here um when it does happen so
1: i wish everybody had that mindset (laughs) (laughs) we're not made for this just stay at home
2: Mm. yeah yeah that's how i feel like it is here and and we do obviously have to deal with some salt just environmentally with plants with the ocean but um as far as yeah the chemical um, issues, less so.
0: Well, Trista, what are some um, guidelines that you can offer, just the general landscaper, when it comes to things to be aware of, or some best practices when considering plantings, or even, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to pay attention to drainage a little bit more and um, get some upsells for for enhancements around, <laughs> <laughs> you know, fixing problems that people are facing. Like what obviously you're, you have all the education experience here, but what would you suggest (laughs) to someone who's thinking, yeah, you know what, I'm interested in pursuing this. What would I even start to look for? How would I even go about it?
2: Yeah. And honestly, like the opportunities that are available are really, really, they get me really excited (laughs) because um, there is still so much opportunity to get into, I don't want to say the green and we're all in the green industry, but you know, the environment, more environmentally conscious side of the green industry. Um, and I think, you know, certainly everybody can do it, but there are even just still so many different ways to specialize if people were just getting into it and looking for something different. Um, and I'm sure it probably varies a bit from area to area, but I think every area of the country right now is dealing with its own issues, um, and so, just starting to understand what some of those are, and you know, maybe getting involved with some of those nonprofits that are local to you. Find out what your local not environmental nonprofits are, um, and what the issues are that they're dealing with. But generally, um, I think that understanding uh, where the water on a property goes is going to be important, no matter where you are. You know, whether you're trying to maximize. Your water because you are in an area that has a lot of drought, and you want to understand like okay, well, when it rains, where is that water going? You know, and just making sure that you're using that to your best advantage um, to maximize the water usage. So you know, maybe again, just just looking at things and understanding how that's working. Um, and I think a lot of times people just don't think about it or pay attention. Um, so I am always looking at you know where are there storm drain or well, yeah, storm drains, but uh, where are the downspouts um, on the house? Are they connected? Are they disconnected? Where is that water going? Uh, are there areas on the ground where I'm seeing that there has been erosion? And you know, is that erosion coming from water that's coming off the property somewhere? And again, where is that water coming from? Um, for us here and for any place where you've got shorelines and dealing with that, Um, just understanding, like, are they having flood issues? Are they dealing with erosion from that? You know, so not only is there water coming off the property that's eroding areas out and leaving these bare, um, compacted, uh, areas that, you know, nothing's growing there because it's all just washing away, but they're also dealing with that constant inundation of floodwaters and storm energy And, you know, maybe you need to find a solution for them to stop losing their property and their land there. Um, And so, you know, I think there are a lot of opportunities for here and other uh, shoreline areas to even do some shoreline maintenance, um, treating different invasives. Uh, That's in the maintenance industry in general, understanding what those invasive plants are Here, a big shoreline invasive that we have is Phragmites that just takes over shorelines um, and they're unattractive and they preclude anything else from being able to grow or live within the shorelines. Um, Seasonally removing rack material just to allow plants to grow. cutting out trees or limbing plants up so that they can allow light into the shoreline or, you know, other areas where maybe things aren't growing because it's gotten too shaded or, um, understanding maybe what things could grow there. Um, and so I guess, um, I started getting into some of the other things that people could do, um, you know, even just outside of the regular landscapers, but
0: I think it's great, right? Because it's all ways to differentiate your offering and add more value, raise your rates because you're you're offering something that's unique and valuable, and going about business in a way that's really more sustainable. And honestly, not any more difficult, right? You just need to learn to use a different palette mm-hmm. of of material and and look for a couple additional things. You know, learn a few mitigation steps, but once you have completed that education, like your process doesn't change. You're still, you're still doing the same things. You're just charging more and having a lot higher value proposition for what yeah. you do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, a big part of what um I see as a whole here um that you know hasn't really been filled yet. Um and I don't know if this is true of other areas as well. But as people are getting more interested in, you know, they want the native plants, they understand that they want to see the pollinators, they want to see the birds. Um, and there's still not a good person that, or a company that I can refer those clients to, to help maintain their plantings after they go in. Um, and so, you know, if, if I knew there were a company that, you know, they knew what a native plant looked like, or they knew any plant that isn't just, you know, something, a shrub or an annual um, for color that... You know, so many times my clients will have, you know, i will put in a thousand plugs or something somewhere and they see these little things in the ground and, you know, the maintenance company will just come in and spray everything. That's not a shrub. And that to me has been so frustrating, just finding a company that will take the time, you know, I'm willing to walk through them with them, you know beforehand if they want, but I understand like there's turnover in these companies, and even if I train one person, you know the next person might not know, um, and so it's just been difficult to find companies that will take the time or that have the knowledge to understand how to maintain that kind of planting. Uh, I plant very densely. I don't leave open mulch when my plantings are complete. The plants are acting as a mulch and so you know that creates more sustainability but then that also means that after those first first couple growing seasons once the plants have filled out um you know like there's not quite as much maintenance to be done there either um you know they're not coming back in and reapplying mulch every year not um coming back in and you know every season changing out the annuals that are in there for that season's color and you know it's more it is more sustainable and, but there are still opportunities for, um, you know, different things to be done there initially, particularly after a planting, you know, we still have to do weeding there. And a lot of times that might be hand weeding. And again, it might involve, you know, knowing what you're looking at and not just spraying everything, um, but actually taking the time. And with that obviously comes, you know, understanding the clients, understanding that that time is money and that, you know, there is a different level of expertise involved in that and that it do have to be compensated appropriately for that. And I think that both on the consumer end and the industry end, that is still something that has to be sussed out. But, um, I do think that it is changing slowly.
1: So how are you kind of I guess, convincing these clients one more labor for doing hand weeding and everything. But if we're planting to have less mulch, you know, talking them into let's go with 10 gallon plants instead of one gallon plants. Like, you know, what are some tips for people starting out? Because it is a great thing. Obviously one tip is, Hey, you're going to use less mulch down the road. Like that's a cost that's every year until these little bitty plants fill up. Um, but some tips for people and trying to get to that standard, um, and getting clients to understand that.
2: Sure. Yeah. And honestly, for me, I'm not really convincing most of my clients because most of them at this point are still seeking me out, uh, for the native plants. So it's not a hard sell for me personally. Um, but I can understand, you know, maybe in some other areas or, um, for companies that are, this isn't their specialty, um, that could be a tougher sell. And I think the big thing though, really is just the maintenance side of it. And just understanding that while initially, you know, the first couple growing seasons may be a little more input that long-term, the, the sustainability of the planting, um, is really, is really what's important and understanding that, you know, when they're using, the native plants, for instance, that you know, not only are they going to see all those pollinators and birds and critters that um people like to see, but that they're also um they're they're not going to need all the extra input of things. You know, the plants that go there are the plants that wanna be there as long as you're choosing the appropriate plants, that they don't need extra watering aside, you know, after the initial after getting them established, um, the first growing season or so, they're not going to need fertilization. They're not definitely not going to want fertilization. Um, and as you said, like not having to reapply the mulch every year, um, once everything has filled out. And yeah, you know, I, I tend to typically use a lot of plug material on the, um, herbaceous perennial end of things. So i will often have, hundreds of plants specked out in a plan to go in as a ground cover. Um, and so I think on the installer end of things, like it, you have a huge number of plants, uh, that you're, that you're still charging the the client for, um, and it's helping that the client to understand that, you know, like, yes, this is a lot, but you're going to have full coverage. This is your mulch, you know, like this is, going to do everything that you need as far as keeping the moisture in the ground, keeping down your long-term maintenance, because you're not going to be dealing with all that weeding because the ground cover, you know, that is this native plant that wants to be here. That's doing all the right things is going to create, um, less weed pressure and, um, yeah, it's going to stay there and it's going to keep looking better every year. You know, like it's not like old wood mulch that's going to brown out and need to be replaced. It's going to keep improving and, um, you know, just helping them to understand all of the other functions it has within the environment for habitat value. Um, but, you know, making sure that you're still providing, um, different seasonal color so that they're not missing the annuals, um, and also helping them to understand that you know, different things are there different times of year for the wildlife. And and a lot of this, I understand, is education for the landscaper as well. But, you know, knowing, okay, like the monarchs migrate through here in the fall this time of year. So that's when it's important to have plants like the asters and the goldenrod. And, you know, you want to have these things here so that they have something to nectar on. And, you know, all the way from the spring, the early bees, native bees and things that are coming out are going to want these kinds of things or in the winter, you know, having berries around, um, and then just some evergreens for cover. Um, but you know, making sure they're seeing seasonal interest that the wildlife is getting the seasonal variation and interest that they need. Um, and I think just kind of helping to bring it all together for the client to help them understand, but, but even if they don't care about any of the habitat value or, any of that uh just helping them to understand that over time this will mean less maintenance um i think is is something that could sell most people.
0: Yeah it's it's a win all the way around right which is the, the ultimate goal of sustainability and um certainly so many opportunities and and potentially overwhelming if it's a new subject right but man if you have a if you have a good local botanical garden if you have a good local, um, state or regional association, like there are people who are cued into exactly what to do and can just give you the list of five to seven (laughs) ideas for plants to go out there that will meet all of that criteria. And, um, at the end of the day, not just less maintenance, but a, a better looking landscape with less maintenance, right? So it's, it becomes, uh, like I said, a, a win all the way around. So I we love that you uh bring this perspective and, and expertise, Trista, because I think it's uh um sorely needed for uh, all these uh companies who um don't even realize how much harm they're doing or or how much good they could actually uh deliver for the environment and for clients. So thank you for that. Yeah, I learned a ton. So <laughs> I'm excited. So, I'm always
1: excited when I can learn something. <laughs> Thank you
2: guys. I I am passionate about what I do and I I love talking about it. So thank you for the opportunity.
0: Yeah. So Trista, we always end our uh, podcasts with a little segment we call Rose and Thorn. We talk about something that uh, has been really awesome and something a little potentially uh, prickly going on for us, um, either personally or professionally. So um, Macy, you want to kick us off? Sure. Yeah.
1: I, uh, my rose is we searched for a very long time for an admin for my Oklahoma City office and we found a great one. She's been a huge help and it's also just really nice to have another female in the office. Um, and so that's been a huge you know, relief off my shoulders. I can focus more on the business and growing the business and the landscaping and designing. Um, versus making sure that uh, we're getting paid for stuff. So that's been really great. Um, No real thorns. It's, you know, full force ahead, trying to stay positive to the end of the year. So uh, no thorns this week for me.
0: Nice. Well, for me, I am just absolutely stoked about the Dodgers record uh, this season. Historically good uh, winning percentage but the regular season ended yesterday. And so it's uh, just a little thorn. I mean, we've got all of the postseason and hopefully a world series win to look forward to, but at the same time, it's like, man, daily baseball is no longer a thing.
1: I know. And, what are you uh, going to do?
0: At this, I, I, I figured out that this is really where seasonal affective disorder comes in. It's just <laughs> the lack of baseball. So I can usually get a couple months watching um, the Korean baseball league um, Japanese baseball, but then that falls off by around the holidays, so yeah, we'll see. I need a new winter hobby, I think. Trista, what do you got? <laughs>
2: Despite being an Ohio State grad, I hate to even say I'm not much of a sports fan, so <laughs> um, but I think uh, Rose for me would be I feel like we start school a lot later here, so my four year old has. Finally, just kind of started getting into the groove of things now. School starting and getting to our fall groove. We've already gotten a couple colds and things out of the way, one of which I'm still getting over now. <laughs> but I think I'm, I'm looking forward to now just being in that zone and space and some nicer weather. Uh, the heat has definitely backed off a bit. So um, that, that's definitely the rose for me and, you know, starting to get plants in the ground again for the fall is exciting. Um, so that is my rose and I hate to, I hate to end on a sad note, but I think my thorn right now is personally, um, we are going to be saying goodbye to our 16 year old dog William in the very near future. So that has definitely been my thorn because that has been a, a long process
1: of trying to, to work things out with him, so that's my thorn. 16 years is a really good life, though. Really not the puppy, it makes me so sad, but oh, yeah. Not, yeah. He lived a good really
0: good life. He has. Well, Trista, we appreciate you taking time to be part of Growing in the Green Industry, and thank you to all of our listeners. Please don't forget to leave us a review and to subscribe. Also let us know if you have ideas for or future subjects on our podcast. And with that, we'll say take care, everyone. Bye, guys. Bye. Right. Thanks, Tristan. We appreciate it.